This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Miyoko Chu, Senior Director of Communications at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Founded in 1915, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology is a member-supported operation of Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. The lab studies birds and other wildlife, but really mostly birds. In addition to conducting their own ornithology, as it were, the Cornell Lab helps cultivate the efforts of citizen science along with supporting plain old birding enthusiasts. If you're not so committed that you consider yourself a birder, they still offer information and guidance. For example, the lab's list of seven simple actions to help birds. In my conversation with Miyoko, Chu, who's been with the lab for some 20 years, I hope to address its history, evolution, some studies. Maybe we'll ask her for some tips on how to get started as a new birder. All that and more about the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. I'm going to speak with Miyoko Chu in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Also coming up later in today's program, I'll speak with Farmer Miner. We'll be hosting an event called Pig Out on Reading with Farmer Miner and Daisy this Friday, March 24th from 4 to 5 p.m. at Old Tomorrow Library. It's geared for kids age 4 to 12. More on this with Farmer Miner a bit later in the show. Right now, though, let's talk about birds and related matters with Miyoko. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Miyoko Chu on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Miyoko. Good morning, Duncan. Thanks so much for joining us on Talking Animals this morning. Thank you for uh, inviting me, and thanks to all the listeners, too. For sure. So, of course, we're here chiefly to discuss various aspects of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, but it occurs to me that a good way to begin this conversation is to start with a bit of discussion about you. I mean, you've been there some 20 years, which suggests a long-standing, fervent passion for birds. So take me back a little bit to the beginning, not necessarily of your association with the Cornell Lab, though I also want to get to that in a moment. But when did you first become enchanted with birds? Uh, well, as a kid, I grew up in uh, the Bay Area in California, and as an urban area, I didn't particularly notice birds much, but I had a life-changing event one day when I went to San Francisco Chinatown with my dad. I was about 10 or 11 years old, and we were walking in the street, and we saw a poultry truck that was selling chickens and other birds for the dinner table. And when I peered into that truck and saw those caged birds, I started crying because I felt so sad about what was going to happen to them. And my dad actually uh, decided that we should try to rescue, do a little rescue operation there. So right on the spot, he uh, paid a couple of dollars for a couple of pigeons. Uh, They were handed to us in a paper bag with their wings and feet tied up, and we took them home. And from there, we, it was totally spontaneous. We had to build a coop, and I would sit in there to get to know them, and that's how my interest in birds started. Wow. Well, I have to say, uh, as you kind of understated there, that was a totally spontaneous uh, act by your dad. It sounds like, like a variation of the impulse buy, but with sort of a distinctive <laughs> twist. So once you brought those two pigeons home, what happened from there, and how did that move you forward in, in sort of being more interested in birds in this urban area of the Bay Area that you're living in? Yeah, and if you imagine me as a kid sitting in this coop with the pigeons and trying to 
watch them and make them less afraid of me. They have ended up mating and laying eggs and having young right in front of me, you know, feet away. I could watch them doing this. And at the same time, I've been reading books about Jane Goodall and her research on chimpanzees. And I imagined myself wanting to do that someday. I just loved animals. And I thought, what an amazing thing to watch them in the wild and learn from them. So even as I was sitting in there watching pigeons in my backyard, I was dreaming of studying animals in the wild. So it sounds like there was a time where something kind of was bridged because you had those two pigeons right there living with you as as a result of that impromptu rescue mission that you and your dad pulled off. And then dreams of studying animals and pursuing them kind of more on a level that was inspired by Jane Goodall. So how did those, at some point, those things must have kind of slightly come together or been bridged in some fashion. How, how did that happen? Yeah, that's right. So when I went to college, I always had in mind that I either wanted to be a writer or a biologist. And I ended up taking some courses and a professor invited me to do some field research in Nebraska studying a bird called the cliff swallow. And I went there. And again, that was a life-changing experience. We spent all day Um, capturing and banding, putting little numbered bands on the legs of these birds and letting them go. And we would get records of how far they traveled, which in some cases was all the way to Argentina and then back to Nebraska. And I found that I did love um, studying birds in the wild, and that was something that I wanted to pursue. So then ultimately I went to graduate school and studied a bird called the Fena pepla, which lives in the desert southwest and was on the way to becoming a bird biologist when I had this opportunity at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology to combine my love of writing with my love of birds. And I came here as a newsletter editor more than 20 years ago. So they pulled you out of academia, basically, it sounds like. Indeed, yeah. From field biologist to armchair, uh, following everything about birds here at the Lab of Ornithology and other places around the world, but really just thinking about how can we share this joy and knowledge and inspiration with other people to help birds and help our natural world. And so when you did join um, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, did that also kind of mark more of a shift from the academic studies that you'd already undertaken that you've mentioned into becoming what many of us at least more casually would kind of consider birders? Yes, I think um, the shift was really fortuitous in terms of the timing. If you can think back to what was happening around uh, 2001 when I arrived here, um, we weren't using the internet the way we are now, um, but there's just been this explosion where today we're able to reach millions of people all around the world to engage them to send information back about what they're seeing, the birds they're seeing. And today, because of all the technology we have, including artificial intelligence, um, but also this incredible network of people who love birds and want to help, we're able to convert that passion for birding and that curiosity that people have into contributions they're making to the science and to some really good conservation information that we can use because birds are really in trouble and need our help. Well, it's great to really hear that. And, and I know a little bit about what the Cornell Lab of Ornithology has done that way is because you, over the course of this, doing this show for nearly 20 years, I guess, you hear about a lot of organizations, especially where there's captive animal situations, talk about conservation. And I know some are serious about their educational efforts, 
But most of those things, the conservation efforts are, well, they're just, they're just not, basically. But in this case, it sounds like there's such an emphasis on science and actually cultivating different ways to, to help birds, birds that maybe their numbers are disappearing or whatever. So it seems like this is actually authentic conservation as opposed to some of those other examples. Yeah, honestly, it's just been revolutionary to see what's happening in terms of uh, greater movement toward people just loving birds but also wanting to do something about it. And as I mentioned with the technology, you know, you can, can take an example of what we couldn't do um, a couple hundred years ago, some people know about the passenger pigeon, which was the most abundant bird in the whole world. It went extinct. And part of the reason for that is not having the information to know soon enough what was happening so that those declines could be turned around. These days, thanks to all the data pouring in from people around the world, we can actually see how birds are faring at different locations at different times in a much more precise and instantaneous way than in the past. And that can speed into the choices that we make about how we can help them. And I would think in, in those kinds of cases, or at least some of those cases, include probably just regular folks, more citizen science, as it were, that are in touch with, with the Cornell Lab and saying, hey, we're off in this remote location or we happen to live here at such and such, and this is what we've noticed. And that probably all goes into some sort of ongoing database that maybe tracks that particular bird or its numbers. Exactly. You don't have to be in a remote place. We need data everywhere. Um, and once we have the, all that information, we can use these high-performance computers to output models showing real precisely, like now you can drill down into an area right around your home, eight-mile radius or so, and see um, whether species, a particular species there has been going up or going down. And you can see that all across the country and you can imagine how powerful that is because you can see, okay, where are they doing well, where are they not, and digging into why is that, and then getting more of those areas going in upward direction. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, I guess, hit peripheral elements, I guess, of the Cornell Lab. But, but tell us more exactly what is the Cornell Lab ornithology. I mean, I picture sparrows and crows and pigeons wearing tiny white coats holding clipboards, <laughs> but I'm guessing that's not correct. But more seriously, the sense I get is that it's actually kind of a sprawling operation, but what can you do to kind of like focus our attention a little bit on kind of what its main mission is and some of the main things that it sets out to accomplish each year? All right. So as you mentioned earlier, it is a nonprofit organization. It's supported by people all around the world who love birds and nature. And what we do is we combine the best of science and technology with outreach and education. So it's really those two halves, the sciences and the arts, right? Mm -hmm. To understand and protect birds and nature, really to help inspire people and then help them make changes that can in turn help birds. So we're based in Ithaca, New York, and we have a, a wonderful destination if people want to come and visit us here. But no matter where you live, we can still be your go-to place to get connected in, to discover birds, and to get involved in learning about them and helping them from no matter where you are. Yeah. And there's so many different ways we can to do that, which we can talk about. For sure. Well, uh, right off the bat, I think some people listening might be surprised to hear that Cornell Lab Ornithology was founded in 1915. I mean, just... Just to hear that it's 100-plus years old, I think, for some people might be like, man, that's, you know, what, what was happening 
early on. So I guess I'm curious to know, what, what do Cornell Lab historians say about those early years? What was the impetus for the founding of the lab at that time? This is a marvelous story in terms of the history of the lab. So Arthur Allen was one of the first ornithology professors in the country when he was hired here at Cornell in 1915. And at the time, the study of birds, ornithology, was so new that um, there wasn't a department that existed here. He had to be added to the Department of Entomology, which is a study of insects. Mm -hmm. He uh, put a handwritten sign outside his door that said, Laboratory of Ornithology, just to make it clear that he was studying birds, not insects. So from that humble beginning, you know, the way he approached his studies was this incredible combination of interest in the, the birds and the biology, but also technology, because he himself was a photographer, and we uh, ended up pioneering techniques to record sounds here. Um, which has led to a huge proliferation of research and incredible um, outcomes we can do with sound right now. Mm. Uh, but he was also really committed to the local community and leading Boy Scouts and writing articles in National Geographic and ultimately producing records with bird sounds. So education and outreach has always been woven into our history. Art always has been as well. And so we carry those things forward into the way that we're not just doing studies, we are bringing it out into the world and we're bringing information in from people who are engaged with us. So it's this beautiful amplification of what we do here going out into the world and what's coming back into us from the world, elevating all that and making so many new discoveries possible. Yeah, it really sounds like it's an ongoing sort of extension of Arthur Allen's own kind of sensibility and and personality, maybe, and tendencies. Yeah, and uh, so I can give you this example with the sound innovation because engineering and technological innovation have been in our roots and are still really important to us today. So the story is that in 1929, you know, back when uh, motion picture films, sound was still a relatively new thing because movies had been silent. 1929, the Fox Case Movie Tone Corporation had been desperately trying to record wild birds in sound, and they couldn't do it because they kept trying to chase these birds around with this big truck because the equipment was so heavy. So they finally reached out to Doc Allen here, um, who took them to a local park, and he knew, Doc Allen knew where the birds were going to come and perch up. So he said, stop chasing them, park your truck here. The birds came in close, and they got that first uh, sound of birds captured uh, ever, you know, like just recorded. Um, and that was a turning point where you can imagine for these people who are studying birds, to be able to capture a bird sound, to study the sound, that was truly revolutionary. And so with that, um, they had to innovate here uh Recorders that were more portable, more affordable. The parabola, maybe you've seen pictures, it's like a big dish, kind of like a satellite dish. Mm -hmm. You needed that to concentrate the bird sound, which they created out of uh, a dish, that a parabolic dish that they found in someone's attic. It had been used to detect World War I planes coming in, but they adapted it to uh, amplify the sounds of birds so they could actually record them better. So from that history, putting these machines into the hands of people who go out into the natural world and capture sounds of all kinds of animals, not just birds, 
led to what we now have with the biggest collection of natural sounds um, in the world. It's in the Macaulay Library here. And um, we have contributions from people who have sent, you can today send us your recordings to be included uh, in the Macaulay Library. Um, so it's, it's this wonderful way that that initial innovation has led to so many new opportunities. Yeah. Well, I got a few questions. One is backing up to the story told about Doc Allen, if I may call him Doc Allen. I don't know if that might be a little too informal. But um, (laughs) so when he was helping those folks get the recordings and saying, hey, stop chasing them. So did he just know that? Well, obviously the chasing wasn't working, but did he just know that if if people just kind of like were quiet and settled, that the birds would just naturally come there either out of curiosity or just their own inherent behavioral tendencies? Yeah, what he knew was that at that time of year, certain birds are setting up their territories that they want to defend from other birds. And they often have a favorite perch where they like to broadcast that this is my spot. Uh, to keep other birds away. And so he knew where those spots were, having been a really astute observer. Um, So that was the magic formula in that case. And that trick is still used by the thousands of people who have contributed 1.7 million recordings that are in our archives today. And that's the Macaulay Library you're referring to? Yes. Wow. So in terms of saying you can send in recordings, is it any kind of animal sound or bird sound in particular maybe that is submitted gets added or is there some sort of criteria by which something is listened to and said okay well that's similar enough to something we have over here that we really be sort of redundant I guess I mean is is there a process by which those are selected or does everything submitted ultimately get added well it's really both so on the one hand we're able to um, take in all sorts of recordings for example the Navy had a huge collection of recordings from surveillance um, you know listening for submarines and other military activity but there they had detected all kinds of marine life on those recordings too so we were able to take that in and digitize it and all those sounds in our collection too we have researchers who contribute sounds from all kinds of animals, from insects to mammals. And, um, but if you want to contribute a recording, you can use our eBird, uh, which is eBird.org platform, which is the, um, it's a year-round way that you can contribute your bird sightings and sounds and, and photos. When you go there, you can upload a checklist that tells us what birds you've seen and when and how many. Um, and you can attach photos with that checklist, and those photos all get added to the Macaulay Library. And those are focused on bird um, observations and photos. I see. So in those cases, anything that someone would submit sounds like would likely yes, it, be added. Yes, it goes into the collection, and you can even see it. You can see all those photos and listen to those sounds if you want to at macaulaylibrary.org. Oh, wow. So you can access everything that's that's there? That's right. It's just like the library you can walk into from your own home and check out all kinds of, you can search for your favorite bird and see videos and photos and listen to sounds or any other animal. That's great. Yeah, because it sounds like even though bird is the focus here, at one point or another, there's been all kinds of wildlife and animals that have been submitted over those years. Yeah, and to me, one of the most amazing outcomes of that vast collection 
is that we're able to use all those sounds to train computers how to automatically identify what bird you might be hearing or um, even detecting other kinds of animals for conservation. So take the bird example. By using these thousands of recordings to teach the computer how to recognize birds, you can now use our free Merlin Bird ID app. You can hold it up while birds are singing, and in real time, it tells you and shows you a picture of which birds are making that sound. And that's all because we were able to teach the computers based on all these recordings that we have in the Macaulay Library. Is that artificial intelligence related or does that sounds like that sort of predates that kind of technology? It is artificial intelligence related and it's a really new capability. Um, it's really hard. It's been, a, like we called it the holy grail, really hard to get computers to accurately identify birds. Now, people wonder about that because they say, well, Shazam, you know, I can hold that up and it can identify the song I'm listening to. Yeah. But it's a very different situation with birds because, first of all, the song you're playing is exactly the same every time. Birds don't sing the same way every time. And you have a lot of other sounds in the environment that can confuse the computer. So it was a real breakthrough to be able to do this accurate identification. Um, and it's been life-changing for people to use Merlin now because... There's so many times, you know, when we've all heard birds and you're wondering, what is that? But you can't quite see it. Or even if you see it, you're not sure how to identify it. So it's a real game changer to connect people in and get them listening and connecting that in with exactly what bird made that sound. Yeah, you really get the sense of uh, how in ways that maybe people wouldn't initially intuitively suspect that all kinds of technology can be used for all kinds of ways of bird identification and versus people who might be thinking, well, you you got to be out in in the wild, and you got to spot it, and you got to take a picture, or you got to at least compare it with your field guide or whatever it might be. I mean, it sounds like it's, uh, it's a whole different ballgame in terms of the, the various means of technology that can be used. Yeah, we really tried to make Merlin so it would be like that friend that you would have that you would just say, "Hey, I saw this bird, and it looked like this." So, in addition to recording a sound, you can um, have Merlin ask you five questions, and then you answer them, and then Merlin tells you what you most likely saw. And that's a pretty hard challenge for an app to do, too. But the yeah. reason it works, again, is it's powered by citizen science. We know from all these records from eBird what's most likely to be in your area today. And with that, we can really narrow down the um, possibilities. Mm. So Merlin can pretty accurately tell you once you've answered those five questions. Was that one of the five questions? Then is kind of what area or what region or zip code or, uh, I mean, is that one of the initial five? Exactly. So you get two really easy ones. Um, you know, when did you see the bird and where were you? And then there are others to help, like um, what colors, um, what was it doing, um, and what size. And with that information, that's enough for Merlin to go on and put the best choices in front of you based on what you're most likely to have seen right around you. Wow. So at that point, of what you just described there, uh, Miyoko, um, does Merlin do its best and then maybe there's three or four possible birds that they think that could have been? Or or does it, by the time the five questions have been answered, do they say, here's, here's, that, here's, here's your one answer, here's the bird? 
Uh, it's the first one. Like it pulls up and shows you pictures and names of birds that are most likely. Mm-hmm. And then you get to tap on the ones, oh, yeah, I think it looked like that. Or I think it, you know, let me just hear that sound again Sure. Uh, from where you tap because we provide information about the bird and more photos and sounds for you to learn more about it and check. Right, so so you're you're further narrowing down after Merlin itself has narrowed it down uh, by way of those five questions. Yes, you are playing a role in helping to identify your own bird, and then you have a button you can push to say, "Yeah, this is my bird." Uh, once you think you've found that, so you're kind of a minor Merlin along the way, working with the the, the real Merlin. Well, that's the beauty. I mean, these tools uh, really require this collaboration between computers and people. Uh, you can't do one without the other. Um, and without all the information or the, the checking and verifying from people, these tools wouldn't work. Um, so it's a really great technology that we have now to do this. And it, the wonderful thing that we see is that it sparks that joy and connection for so many millions more people yeah. who might not have looked in a field guide, who might not have asked someone about it. And then you're instantly connected in with the bird and you're connected in with the lab of ornithology if you want to go do more activities or more ways of learning. Yeah, I'm also thinking of other ways that it kind of reaches people that might consider themselves a little intimidated by technology or a Luddite or whatever that might be, that this probably like holds their hand and kind of takes them into some serious technology that they're probably enjoying and maybe even giddy about once they sort of take a take a few stabs at it. Yeah, I mean, it's really simple to use. We made it so that it would be fun and simple. Um, but then once you have that information about birds or if you, um, as a part of signing up for Merlin, you can opt to have us um, share more information back with you about, you know, whether you might want to try a citizen science project or um, take a free course to learn how to use eBird or even, and we have a bird academy online um, distance learning platform that, you know, we have more than 175,000 students of all ages from all over who can take classes uh, in nature journaling or photography, gardening or bird biology or identification. So it's just like Merlin is that first touch point where you've gotten excited and then you can step into so much more. Yeah, come on in after you check out Merlin. I think you're going to like what you see. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Miyoko Chu, Senior Director of Communications at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. We're discussing birds and birding and the Cornell Lab itself, of course, and more. If you have questions for Miyoko about birding or identifying birds or technology or anything else that sort of touched on what we were discussing or just would like to offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So in the 100-plus years history of the Cornell Lab, is there a particular decade that's considered critical in the organization's evolution, like a period of, of... particular change? Oh, there are so many that we could choose because even though you could go back in history, at any decade there was so much innovation going on. But where I saw this tremendous shift in the scale of what we could do was, um, you know, probably in that first decade after I got here from about 2001 to 2011, 
because that's when social media was coming online. That's when we mm. started having citizen science coming online. It's when, and, and then more recently with artificial intelligence in this past decade, these are really pushing up the speed and the scale with which we can communicate with, connect with, and inspire people to do something uh, to help birds. Um, yeah. So I am just so excited. You know, sometimes it feels daunting that, you know, we have lost 3 billion birds in the U.S. and Canada in my lifetime. And um, we have more than half of birds in North America are declining. They're going the wrong way. So when you hear numbers like that, it can feel very um, challenging and sometimes hopeless. But then on the other hand, when you look at all these tools that we have and we look at all the people who care and the people who are getting engaged, then you say, wow, we've never had anything like this in the history of humanity. Uh, so we need to do more. We need to do it faster. And we can make a difference. So it sounds like in that first decade that when you first went to the Cornell Lab that 2001-2011 period, and then maybe the most recent decade, partly because it sounds like those are big leaps in how participatory the lab and, and its functioning is relative to people doing things, posting things, participating in other stuff, and being more directly involved in the studies, citizen science, and others that are going on there. Exactly. It's the dynamism. It's the interactions we can have with you no matter where you are. And now another thing in addition to artificial intelligence it would be um, language capabilities. So we can put our information and communicate with and bring information in from countries all over the world, not just the U.S. and Canada now. And so, again, that takes our scale to a whole different level. And so I guess that raises a good question. At this point, how many... Um other sort of international uh, users are participating in uh, one or more aspects of some of the technology and um, things that we've talked about. Well, Merlin has been downloaded more than 10 million times, and that's all over the world. Yeah. And then um, eBird has more than 800,000 participants from around the world. And so, yeah, and, and there's the growth curve is just stunning. Everything is still really growing as more and more people get connected with birds. Is there a way to track, in, in one or both cases, what countries, apart from this one, seem to be the most active in those ways? Yes. Um, so we just had the Great Backyard Bird Count in February, and mm. um, um, just long, a long weekend of checklisting. And India, uh, you know, is really a front runner in terms of bringing in checklists. And then we have countries, you know, for example, Colombia, that has a real lot of bird diversity per, you know, unit uh, person or land area. Mm. And so there's all different ways that countries are pouring in data, sometimes because they have more diverse species and sometimes because they have a base of people who are super into birding. Yeah. Given all that and given the international participation, who is the Cornell Lab uh, of Ornithology's Constituency. I mean, I imagine the core constituency is, is birders and people who are participating with Merlin or eBird. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, is, is but who else? I mean, who else kind of makes up that constituency? Well, it really is for anyone, no matter what level of interest they have, whether they just used Merlin yesterday or um, whether they've been birding their whole life. And there's different things that people can do all along that journey. But we've also found that 
many of um, people who are involved with us are gardeners or they're photographers or they just are hikers. They like nature. They like animals. Um, and we haven't yet, I mean, I mentioned that our Macaulay Library has thousands of all different kinds of animals, but we actually do research with not just birds, but whales and elephants and insects. Our K. Lisa Yang Center for Conservation Bioacoustics uses sound as a tool to study all animals. And so anyone who really cares about the natural world um, by supporting our organization and getting involved is really helping the whole natural world, not just birds. No, again, I think that's something that, that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily have thought just because they'd figure, hey, well, a bird is practically in their name. They're, it seems like they're focused on birds, and, and indeed you are, but I think that people would be also interested to learn that, that, that it goes well beyond that uh, in terms of the sounds and other kinds of studies that, that take place there as well. Yes, you don't think elephant automatically when yeah. you hear a lab of ornithology, but that's, that's right. been one of our most longstanding programs to study the sounds of elephants and protect them from poaching. Yeah, I suppose Dumbo is the only example that comes to mind that sort of is both. <laughs> but uh, so, um, so I invited a friend named Stephanie Seymour, who's a veteran, passionate birder, to pose two or three questions uh, in preparation for our conversation. So, so one of hers is, um, what kind of programs do you have to appeal to young birders and conservationists? What sort of outreach do you do for that group? Because she says, uh, you know, as we know, young people are the future of the planet. We want them interested in the environment and so on. That's a wonderful question because you're absolutely right, Stephanie, about young people. And I am so heartened to see young people who love birds. So we have a K-12 program that's in classrooms um, all around the hemisphere. Um, So if you know, any of you know educators who want resources to help with um, birds in the classroom, you can check out our K-12 programs. For older students, we have young birders um, networks and resources where, you know, a lot of times young uh, students feel that their hobby of birding isn't really a mainstream one and they like to connect in with other people with similar interests. So that's a way to um, support uh, people through that network. Um, And then all the way through coming to Cornell University for training, you know, to come to school and learn how to do field work, learn how to do conservation. We train hundreds of students every year, um, and uh, they go out into the world and then become uh, coaches and leaders themselves, which is really inspiring. That's great. So uh, backing up a little bit to the the K-12 thing, so is that like a um, sort of like a prepared curriculum that people could access if they were teachers and said, hey, uh, I, I have a class that falls within that range, and uh, that would be a great way to sort of expand our, our science and, and other kinds of offerings that we're doing in the class. Exactly. There's a range depending on um, how deep you want to go, so you can get full curricula, or you can get resources to support activities that you're doing with your other curricula. Um, and there are also resources that are for homeschoolers, or even just for parents who are looking for activities, you know, on the weekend or at mm, school. That's so great. So there's really a lot you can dig into there. No, that's really great to, to, to range from people in formal classroom setting to homeschoolers. That, that's terrific, yeah. So here's another question from Stephanie, um, and then I'll get back to a couple of my own, and we're sort of nearing the end of our time together, Miyoko, but... Um, she asked, do you have any programs that reach out to inner-city people of all ages? Yes. So we have a program called Celebrate Urban Birds, 
and it's really structured around um, working with community groups, um, some of them in urban areas, but some in rural or other types of settings as well, and finding ways to engage people in communities in ways that they feel that their communities will be most interested. So often it could be art. It could be music or dance. It can be outdoor activities. Um, but the communities have suggestions that we can provide and even resources. We offer mini grants um, to organizations who need a little funding, you know, to help out with an activity. So Celebrate Urban Birds is a great place to go if you're in a city and looking to engage uh, your community. Great. And here's something you alluded to earlier in our conversation, which was the decline in the overall bird population of 3 billion birds. So uh, in light of that, do you have a generally positive outlook for saving endangered and threatened bird species? Or how do you, how do you view that situation? Well, I have to be honest. The challenges are so great and the declines are happening so quickly that there are times when it is really hard to feel hopeful but as I mentioned, the hope that we do have is that in order to make the changes that we need to keep our planet sustainable and keep our wildlife healthy and, and live with our wildlife really depends on our choices as people, both in our daily decisions about um, how we go lightly on the planet, um, but also larger um, movements we can help, whether it's through how, how we vote or how we donate. Um, to try to make those bigger scale changes that are needed. Yeah. All right. So overall, you're you're maintaining optimism, even though sometimes it's a little tricky to, to do. I am absolutely maintaining optimism. I think just the fact that we're here talking about it and that people are listening yeah. is great reason for optimism. And how is the uh, operation of the, uh, the the Cornell Lab Ornithology funded? I mean, as we've established here, it's it's... It's sprawling. There's all kinds of technology. There's all kinds of resources and services. So that's obviously got to take some money to keep going and keep expanding and, and, and advancing. So what are the, some of the sources that um, help underwrite the, the Cornell Lab? Well, this is a chance for me to thank anybody who's listening who is a member of the Lab of Ornithology. If you become a member, you can get our Living Bird magazine, which is a beautiful magazine full of photos and information. So we're supported by our members, by our philanthropic donors, um, and also through grants. Um, there are also ways that we help raise revenue through our activities. For example, if you take a Bird Academy course and you pay a, a fee for that, that supports us to continue our work, not only making more courses and supporting you, but also um, creating more tools and supporting our overall mission of conservation. Yeah, great. All right, so we sort of started off this conversation talking more about you and sort of your personal, so I figured maybe we'll book in that by wrapping up with a question or two along those lines. So can you describe, I mean, obviously you've been there for 20-plus years and, and obviously fascinated by birds for even longer. Can you describe how you feel on those rare occasions when you spot a bird you've never seen before, how you feel? Yeah, I can tell you this happened to me just this weekend because um, we had heard that there's some short-eared owls near the airport here, which is only a mile or two from my home. Mm. And so my husband and I went out at dusk, and um, as soon as we drove up to the airport fence, which is kind of on the back side of the airport, we saw this owl sitting on the fence. This is a life bird for me. I'd never seen one before. It was only maybe 50 meters away. So looking through my binoculars, I'm looking at that owl 
snapping its head back and forth, listening, you know, where's my next meal going to come from, probably. Mm. But I could see the intensity of its eyes. I could see how alert it was. And then it lifted up off the fence and started coursing around the field. Oh, wow. Buoyant flight. It was like a moth, but like a bird, and it was dusk. And that beauty and just seeing something for the first time that you've never seen before right next to your own home on an everyday weekend, that was amazing. Yeah, that sounds like uh, super exhilarating and 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 what kind of keeps uh, long-time birders going. Indeed. Great. Well, we have just about reached the end of our time. We've been speaking with Miyoko Chu from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. The website is birds.cornell.edu, and there's so much great information about the many things we talked about and many things we just didn't have a chance to talk about. So it's a great website to visit. And, of course, obviously support their efforts when you can, and uh, one way or another would be great. So, Miyoko, thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals. I learned a lot, and it was really fun speaking with you. Thanks so much, Duncan. Thank you. In a moment, I'll speak with Farmer Miner, who will be presiding over a program called Pig Out on Reading with Farmer Miner and Daisy, happening this Friday, March 24th from 4 to 5 p.m. at the Oldsmar Library. Designed for attendees age 4 to 12, this extravaganza features storytelling, animal facts, and the chance to pet a pig. That pig would be the uh, aforementioned Daisy. So, we'll do that in just a moment. Right now, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a talking animal's fave, Joe Zimmerman. Here's a piece called Animal Attacks from Joe Zimmerman in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. Animal attacks are confusing because everywhere you travel, there's a different attack technique. Uh, I was down in Florida. They're like, alligator attack, just running a zigzag. Everybody knows that. <laughs> I didn't know that. Is that true? Because aren't alligators' eyes on the sides of their head? Wouldn't they see you when you're zigging and zagging? Like, there he is. Got him. Okay, he's back. Good thing he's not sprinting straight ahead. That'd be my blind spot. I'm going straight ahead. I know some attacks. Like, I know shark attack, put it in a headlock, drag it onto land. I know that one. Stupid shark. Can't even, can't even breathe. What a dumb shark. I've always heard if you see a wolf in the wild, you're not supposed to smile. Takes the teeth as a sign of aggression. Yeah, I don't know who sees a wolf in the wild and goes... It's a pack of wolves. Wave. They're smiling back at us. I hope they come play. And there's something called an alligator snapping turtle that can be up to 300 pounds. Very aggressive. If you're ever attacked, they say to hold its head underwater because it has a weak neck. Maybe. But if I'm ever attacked by a 300-pound turtle, I feel like my first move is to walk away. Right? I think step two with the turtle is if it chases, you're going to want to keep walking. <laughs> Just don't take a nap. Oh, turtles hate naps. Little 
little Aesop's fable humor get things going. <laughs> All right. That was Joe Zimmerman in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Animal Attacks, taken from his uh, album Smiling at Wolves. Now it's time to speak with Farmer Miner about the program Pig Out on Reading with Farmer Miner and Daisy's presenting this Friday at the Old Smart Library. This is Farmer Miner on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Farmer Miner. Good morning, Duncan. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. Happy to. So I'm guessing you weren't born with the name Farmer Miner. How did the farmer well, part come about? Well, I I grew up on our family farm in Bristol, Connecticut, okay. many, many years ago. And my last name is Miner. Okay. I was a farmer. Hence, Farmer Miner. Sure, yeah. I didn't question the minor part of it. <laughs> I just yeah. had the farm. Yeah. I didn't know if your driver's license said actually Farmer Miner or not, but... Uh, no, uh, but yeah. that's what everybody knows me as, Duncan. Sure, of course, and with good reason, which we'll explore uh, presently. So, so when did you start reading to kids in this format? Well, I, I was actually in the corporate world for 30 years as well, wore a suit and tie every day, mm. and a librarian got me started doing programs with, with Daisy back in 1998. That wow. was the first Daisy. I'm, I'm with the second Daisy now. I see. But I've been doing this full-time uh, basically for about 22 and a half years. Wow. And our, yeah, our mission is to encourage children to develop that love for reading because it's so vital for, for children, of course. And um, we... We have been just enjoying our stay here in the Tampa St. Pete area for uh, the last two months, and uh, so you travel around. It sounds like to to provide these kind of programs. We we do. I I actually have an RV that I I live in about eight months out of the year. We've we've done programs in all forty eight states. Wow! Over our years, we've done seven national tours, and. Uh, uh, we've we've enjoyed it immensely, but we're we're getting old now. Daisy and I are both getting old, so maybe I'm going to do another year, possibly. We'll uh, see how we feel. Yeah. Well, I hope uh, hope this doesn't come to an end. Sound like it's been a sort of indispensable thing for uh, for quite a few uh, quite a few years at this point, covering a lot of the uh, the country. Geez, that's that's impressive. So, what what? Uh, what does Daisy's presence uh, add to these uh, afternoon sessions, do you think? Well, I, I do storytelling. Actually, it's true storytelling, though, about how Daisy came to live with us. And, and we also have a pug dog, Dixie Cup, who's part of the act. Mm. And uh, they're, they're in their strollers on either side of me as I'm in my chair at the programs. And... Uh, the kids, of course, just love them to death. And yeah. so many kids don't, maybe they get to see dogs, but Dixie Cup is a sweet little thing and loves to be petted and loved by these kids. And most of our shows are probably now in the early childhood area, probably three to five or so. We do a lot of elementary too, but mm -hmm. after COVID, uh, many of the schools didn't start doing the big assemblies that we used to do with them with three or 400 kids to a show. So I see. We, we focus on the early childhood learning anyway, because that's where you have to get these kids uh, to start reading and, and to learn to enjoy reading. Because yeah. if you don't, by the time they're in third grade, 
it's it's pretty much hopeless according to tough, all the studies I've seen. Yeah, it's a tough uh, tough task at that point, or tougher. Yeah, but uh, but the kids love the kids love the pig, of course, and and the fun part of it. Uh, you may not be aware of this, but every night, ever since Daisy was a little baby, before she'll go to sleep at night, I read her a storybook. But it has to be a pig storybook. That's all she ever wants me to read her. Wow. And uh, people people have actually sent Daisy pig books from all over the world. She has a, she has a pig book library, which <laughs> is larger than 1,100 pig books now. Oh, my goodness. And yeah. do, do some yeah, of those so, books make it into the uh, the reading that you do with the uh, school kids? Uh, the, a couple of them do. I'm I'm spending most of my time telling the kids about Daisy's famous life and how she became, you know, so much in love with having books read and, I and see. her life because it's so unusual. Sure. And uh, at the end, depending on the age of the of the kids that I see. Uh, there, there are several books that I, I use, uh, one particular young one, which was Daisy's first baby book. Actually, I use with the younger kids. And if it's an older group, I have another one that's more, more appropriate for their age and it upgrades the program for them. Sure. That's great. And do you ever find that, uh, uh, that Daisy proves actually to be more of a distraction than, than a way to focus the kids' attention on the story you're telling? Actually, there are certain points of time Daisy looks like she's sleeping in her stroller for the most part. She's not. She's actually just resting. But at a a certain point in time when I have a tape of some of Daisy's noises that I start playing and there's one that has the noises of what she sounds like chewing her food because pigs chew with their mouths open and it's pretty disgusting, Daisy comes to life because she knows the show so well and knows that it's treat time. She comes to life and, and sits right up in the stroller and the kids just go crazy. Wow. And, and that's a, but that's a good distraction you see, because that, that gets them to focus on what I'm telling them about and about her spoiled life. No, that sounds great. And, uh, so, um, do you, is there a, uh, is there a way to find out, like for people that are hearing about this and say, hey, I'd love to have my kid, I wonder if our school does this, or is there, because I, I tried to go to a website and look looked like, A, it w- one part of it wasn't working, and B, it wouldn't grant me access, so I wonder if there's some other online uh, uh, presence. I, I, can give you, I can give you my email address uh, if you'd like. Uh, sure. It's farmer, it's farmer Minor, mm-hmm. F-A-R-M-E-R-M-I-N-O-R, right. at sbcglobal.net. Okay. So people can just and, send you a note inquiring when you'll maybe be in yeah, their area. Yeah, and the reason the website I I the website got hacked ah. probably 5 years ago, Duncan, okay. many did. And it, it just it, it kept going up and down and I'm I'm just so busy right now anyway, I sure. just decided it wasn't worth it. Dealing and, with it, uh, yeah. Gotcha. So the best way is to send me an email if they'd like, and okay. I'd be happy to talk to them about what we do. All right, Farmer Miner. Well, thank you so much. Uh, again, he is going to be uh, at uh, Oldsmar Library this Friday, the 24th, from 4 to 5 p.m., and you can email him at the address we just gave you, Farmer Miner at spcglobal.net, to find out where other appearances might be. Thank you so much, Farmer Miner, for joining us on Talking <laughs> Animals. 
You're so welcome. You take care. Have Thank a wonderful you. day. It's WMNF Tampa on Talking Animals. Scott Elliott's up next. Thanks. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh.